but I love all of it. It's just so, I mean, it's, it's definitely hit or miss is like within films too. Like even the greatest films have like some pretty cringy moments, I'd say, but he's really walking the line between like profoundness and meaninglessness. And I really like that. And I, I've, as I've started making my own films, I've definitely been inspired by Lynchian ideas of how to tell a story. Um, and I love the open-endedness of it. And I actually took my, my, the last class I took in college was a class about David Lynch. Mm. So I, I took a whole quarter learning about like him and all of his films. And he's, he's just like, I think he's one of the most genius creatives that's alive today, maybe of all time. <laughs> Welcome back to the Formative Films Project, a podcast series where we discuss how and why the movies we watch shape us, entertain us, and help tell the stories of our lives. I am your host, Braden Shaw. A name that's kept popping up throughout my conversations is David Lynch, the enigmatic, reclusive auteur whose films have been known to confuse and captivate. Because of that, it was no surprise his 2001 film Mulholland Drive was highly sought after as a favorite film worthy of dissection. We'll finally talk about it later in this episode, but the reason two of his films are topics of discussion here are that he's such a singular storyteller. For better or worse, a David Lynch film is a David Lynch film, if you catch my drift. The rich color palette, the Angelo Badalamenti score, the surrealism, his unique sense of humor, it all makes for great conversation after the fact. The same could be said for Darren Aronofsky, another writer-director with a sparse film resume, yet one that's made noise at both the Academy Awards and in cult fandoms alike. His intense films delve into some rather dark and or serious subject matter, artistic struggle, biblical allegories, climate change, but again, still very much thought-provoking, if not somewhat controversial. With all that said, we'll start with Lynch, and a film equal parts coming of age, noir, and unhinged Dennis Hopper. My name is Taylor Weber, and my favorite movie is Blue Velvet. Taylor Weber, another KU film grad, says he's always been drawn to movies and storytelling in general since watching Star Wars for the first time. I see that you have the, the final shot from The Empire Strikes Back behind you. And The Empire Strikes Back has just always been a really incredible piece of art to me that spoke to me from a really young age. And it has changed in how I view it and how I see it throughout all my life. I see new things in it each time. And I think that's, that's the power of cinema and the power of film. And that's what I love about it. And I think... The movie we're going to be discussing today, Blue Velvet, is one of those movies that uh, has changed each time I've seen it. You know, focusing in a little more here, um, how would you describe your relationship with the work of one David Lynch? The, the first thing I ever saw of Lynch's was in high school, I tried to watch the pilot for Twin Peaks and got about halfway through and was like, oh, this isn't for me. And then last year... Um, like right after I graduated uh, during the pandemic, I stumbled across Blue Velvet uh, and hadn't seen anything other than Twin Peaks from him. And 
I watched Blue Velvet and was just absolutely stunned by everything about it. I was just floored. And I fell down a rabbit hole pretty quickly. My girlfriend and I started watching Twin Peaks together and we blitzed through it in maybe two weeks. Uh, I think he is a really strange mind (laughs) and he just, he weaves in kind of commercial storytelling elements really well with just the most absurd things you'll ever see in your life, which I think is really fascinating. And I think movies like the elephant man and Mulholland drive, like blur kind of commercial understanding of film with his deeply like acid laced and kind of weird mind. Another film that leans into that disorienting feeling and elicits equal amounts of curiosity and confusion is blue velvet. You know, like I said, um, I, I first saw it last year and you know, I, I watched it and a lot of times being someone who went through film school, you're kind of forced into like understanding film structure and you're like, this is plot point one. It happens 25 minutes in and you kind of just, you can watch any movie and you're like, this is exactly where I'm at. And when I watched it, I, I had, I lost all sense of time when I was watching the movie and just kind of it became lost truly in the movie in a way that hardly has ever happened to me where I just, I was really along on the ride with Jeffrey where, you know, he finds the ear and it's really this entryway into this dark twisted underbelly of society. And I was just sucked in and I like, I couldn't look away at all. And it was a movie that I didn't know anything about going into. Uh, I kind of knew that, it was an erotic thriller, but I didn't know anything about Frank or that Laura Dern was in it or really anything other than David Lynch directed it. And I was really just blown away because it has those moments where, you know, when he first gets into the apartment, he it's really commercial and kind of like a Hitchcock movie where like he flushes the toilet as she honks on the horn but you hear the flush and you don't hear the horn. And that is just straight out of something like rear window. And I was just so engrossed. And then when Dorothy comes in and you, you get that twist, I was like, Oh God, how is this going to end? And then Frank comes in and I was like, who is this? And it was just one of the most charged viewing experiences I've ever had. And I've, it has haunted me ever since. From 1986, Blue Velvet, written and directed by David Lynch, follows Jeffrey Beaumont, played by Kyle MacLachlan, who's come back home from college to visit his sick father. While he's back in town, Jeffrey discovers a severed human ear in a field and teams up with the local police detective's daughter, Sandy Dennis, played by Laura Dern, to solve the mystery. But as the web unravels, Jeffrey enters the seedy underground world of crime and foul play involving nightclub singer Dorothy Valens and sexually repressed psychopath Frank Booth. The film, which earned Lynch his second career Best Director Oscar nomination, is ultimately a surrealistic coming-of-age story about the underbelly of middle-class suburbia, sexual repression, and taking a side in the heated debate of Heineken versus PBR. 
Um, you know, I, I feel like one thing it's maybe this is just my own personal experience, but um, I, I feel like one thing with Lynch's filmography is, you know, some people, uh, as you've mentioned, he has a very distinct style and he has a very distinct subject matter and a way to tell stories um, that, you know, I think some people um, and myself included to a certain extent, uh, we're a little, a little standoffish to kind of, you know, dive all the way into the Lynch, Lynch sphere, I guess. Um, do you think that, cause you know, I, I feel like Mulholland Drive, for example, is a pretty approachable film for at least his standards and like Elephant Man. Do you feel like Blue Velvet is a good, would be a good starting point for somebody to, if they were going to kind of go further into Lynch's oeuvre? I've thought about this a lot because I've heard a lot of people say it's kind of one of Lynch's most approachable movies because it is kind of just a straight up noir and you know, people get twisted up in it. But I really think the more I've thought about it and the more I've kind of thought about how all the pieces fit together, it's a strange movie. It struck me the other night as I was watching it that I really couldn't like recount how the plot works or like things happen that just don't make sense. Like it really struck me that at the end of the movie, he goes back to Dorothy's apartment and he has a reason to, but then Frank shows up when like there's a police raid at Frank's apartment and it's like, why is Frank there? But you're kind of so caught up in the emotion of it that it just makes sense and it works. But it's a really heady kind of heavy thematic movie. And I remember the first time I watched it, I didn't understand what it was about. And like I said, it's changed each time I've seen it, but I think it is both approachable. And the more you watch it, the more you're like, this is a weird movie, kind of like vertigo to bring back Hitchcock where it's, you know, the first time I watched it, I was kind of unsatisfied, but enjoyed it. But it, it's it's approachable, but really deep, like good art should be. Um, you, you mentioned you mentioned that you know that you've you've re- been able to revisit this one a few times. I mean, how many times have you seen Blue Velvet? What what about this one? Because you know, I, I feel like sometimes with least I don't wanna, I don't want to use strange in like the pejorative sense, but like kind of this like mystery, especially going on in this one. Um, what about it makes you want to kind of go back and keep revisiting it? Uh, there's something about it that I know, especially the first time I watched it, it really stuck with me how twisted it was. And I think, you know, I was really haunted by, by Frank and Dennis Hopper's performance in that it was just such a dark and seedy, really disgusting world that Lynch was portraying every time I thought about it, I was like, I, I lost the beauty in it where um, we can get to that in a little bit, but I just, I, I was haunted by it. And when I went to rewatch it, I noticed all these different things that kind of counteracted the, the really horrifying, disgusting things that I saw. Like each time I've seen it, I've, I've noticed different things about Laura Dern's performance uh, as Sandy where it's she's really this counter um to frank in that when we first see her she's literally stepping out of the darkness into this pool of light and when she's talking about this dream she had about the birds arriving and bringing light she's saying this in front of a church um and it's just things like that that have each time i've rewatched it i've noticed these small details that lynch puts in that really open up new thematic understandings to this movie for me 
Uh, well, let's dive into the story a little bit. We kind of open up, we also close this movie with, you know, shots of that white picket fence, you know, that, that shot of suburbia, the fire truck going by, it's waving and stuff, and backyard, barbecue or whatever. Um, how do you feel like, and, and, you know, to my understanding, just from what I've seen and read about him, you know, Lynch has looked at the middle class across his, uh, many of his films and TV work. Um, what did you feel like this film had to say about, you know, that suburbia, that, that domestic bliss that I guess some of these people are kind of entranced by in um, Lumberton? You know, he, he's always been really interested in the dark seedy underbellies of things. Like there have been scores of essays written about the fact that, you know, he starts with all those really s- serene and scenic images of this small town. And then he goes deep and you see all those roaches and bugs crawling over each other, fighting and eating each other. And it's like, yeah, this is what he thinks of small town America. And I think the plot really ties in with that, where Frank is a representation of all these really ugly things that Jeffrey is really struggling with. And I think Jeffrey is just this embodiment of what Lynch thinks of small town America and that he's so drawn to the dark and the really twisted side of the world. And that's why he's peeping on Dorothy and all these sorts of things. But he also sees some beauty with Sandy and it's, he does a really good job of using his characters to make these points and he tells a story through these points, but he's really arguing something in these movies. It's not like he's coming out and just straight up saying there's a CD underbelly to everything. He's letting you figure that out yourself and draw your own conclusions, which I think is one of the beautiful things about this movie is you can see it a hundred different ways. Yeah, and I think that that kind of provides an interesting dichotomy, especially at the ending, you know, early in the film, we kind of hear Sandy's dream, as you alluded to earlier with the Robins, you know, so I guess it means there's trouble till the Robins come. And, you know, at the end of this, uh, we see that shot of the Robin on the windowsill with the bug in the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that, it, it's interesting, what do you think of that choice to kind of end it that way? And like, as we've mentioned, this film is grotesque in a lot of respects. But to kind of end it with that almost like serene, dare I say, happy ending um, to this film. I think when Jeffrey kills Frank, th- this is something I've been thinking a lot about today in preparation for this conversation, is I feel like Frank is such an embodiment of the things that Jeffrey is being seduced into and kind of torn between. That when he kills Frank and he embraces Laura Dern at the end, he's really choosing that light and choosing the bright, serene, happy parts of, of suburbia instead of the dark sea, the underbelly. And I think that's, you know, he kills Frank and the Robins come. The, the ending is so, so justified. The first few times I kind of bumped against it because I was like, this is such a twist and departure from what we've seen. But I feel like the more I thought about it and the more I've seen it, it just feels like such a natural conclusion that he would choose to reject this darkness and all these terrible twisted things to, to choose something light and happy. Um, you know, as I was watching this last night, um, you know, and, and just 
even taking into account, you know, the Kyle MacLachlan characters and the um, and Laura Dern character, this struck me more and more. And I'm and I'm curious if you feel the same way. This struck me more and more as a coming of age film in a mm-hmm. lot of respects. Um, and there, there's definitely that loss of innocence there. Um, and you know, even like when uh, Jeffrey comes back, you know, to his his dad's shop, I think you know they say it's so good to have you back. You know that that feeling of kind of going back home right after college or while well, you're in college rather. Um, what did you kind of make of that aspect of it? And just that, you know, these, these, I mean, they're kids basically, right. Mm-hmm. You know, they're our age and, um, and they're just experiencing this all. And I mean, there's so much uncertainty and again, you know, that loss of innocence there. Yeah. I've had that exact same thought where I feel like he's really like a, a quiet shy kid when he starts the film and you know, he gets, he's looking for something to really draw out this different part of him. And I think the moment where he loses his innocence and really like takes a step that he can't come back from is when Dorothy is like begging him to hit her. And then he does. It's just, you know, it's that moment where he really realizes that there is darkness to him. And he's, he's not so unlike Frank, I feel like. I, I was watching a couple of the deleted scenes for this. And if I remember correctly, there's a scene where he's looking in girls' windows or he's peeping on girls when he's still in college before he's come back. And I, I am just so glad David Lynch cut that. Cause it's like, if you had those scenes before he finds the ear, it would just ruin the theme of the movie. I feel like, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, I definitely, definitely feel that, you know, especially after he comes out of the closet the first time and she keeps, she, I mean, threatens him with a knife, even pokes him, uh, you know, have you done this before? And he, you know, of course, pleads as innocent, but that, that's kind of an interesting thing I was going to next. Um, this is a very, and as you kind of mentioned earlier, but this is a very like voyeuristic film, right? You know, a lot mm-hmm. of respects, you know, there's that line that I love uh, that uh, Sandy says when they're, when they're both in the car, you know, I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. And he replies, it's, that's for me to know and you to find out. My first question with that, do you think he's a detective or a pervert? Or maybe a little bit of both. I, I think he's a pervert. I, I think he's looking for a thrill. And I don't, I, I'm not necessarily saying that in a pejorative way. Um, like I love that David Fincher quote where he's like, I think everyone's a pervert. That's why I have a career. Um, you know, he's, Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, I don't think he's really either. I think he's just someone who who wants more out of the world and doesn't feel that he's he's getting it. And so he goes looking for different places to to find these experiences. Like I think he's just unhappy and wants more. How much of that you think comes from the situation with his dad? Um, especially the reason he comes home because his dad's in the hospital. Mm. You know, I think it's really funny because the first few times I, I saw this movie, I was like, his dad never really comes up again after the, the beginning. But it's like he's being ripped away from somewhere that he could gain these new experiences and like feel like his own person and grow. But he's drawn back home by this unstoppable force really and he has to explore and find new things so i feel like if his dad hadn't been sick he would have been an entirely different person 
And I think, you know, going back home when you're in college is just the worst. You feel like an adult, but then you have to live by your parents' rules again. And it's, I feel like that's where he's at is he's back home and he feels stuck. So he has to find something. Yeah, kind of blowing this up a little more. Uh, I feel like a lot of, especially as you mentioned, we have Dorothy's character, or Dorothy and you know Frank. Um, there, there's this really, this pre- pretty potent uh, power dynamic, especially from a sexual standpoint. You know, and a sexual repression um, in a lot of ways, especially kind of that hometown, that small town aesthetic. You know, everybody's trying to be covered up, but then some people, you know, out in the open with it. You know, they had that sex scene at basically where, you know, she threatens him with a knife to have sex with her. And, you know, he, you know, Frank goes, you know, don't, don't you fucking look at me as, as he has this, you know, I'm, I'm curious what you think of that, the aspect of, he has this, like, I don't know. I didn't, I was trying to think of ways to describe it. This like asthmatic Oedipus complex. Like, I don't like, I, 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 I'm just curious what you think of that element and just like Frank's, I guess, Frank and Dorothy's relationship to sex. I think it's really That's interesting. That's kind of a loaded question. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it, it's a great question because I really don't know what to think about it. And that's one of the things that, you know, you asked me what keeps drawing me back to this movie is what the fuck am I supposed to make of them? Like, I just, I don't know how to feel about that and what to think because, you know, it goes from Frank is having, is, is raping her and is super violent to her and controlling but then when she's having sex with Jeffrey, she's flipped the switch. She's controlling. She's in charge. It's just such rich ground. I don't know what to think. What do you think? Um, you know, you know, I, I tend to kind of go with, uh, and again, l- last night was the first time I'd seen this film. So it's still pretty fresh. Really? Yeah. So it's still pretty oh. fresh for me. But, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot of it um, has to do with, I think something had to have happened with in Frank's past, especially with his parents, um, just to, you know, cause especially with his whole relationship with blue velvet in a lot of ways too. Um, and how, you know, he, how he controls. Well, and of course, I mean, we, we haven't really talked about it much, but you know, of course the kidnapping in this, you know, that, that plays a huge factor too. And now he's kind of holding that over. Does it but, play a huge factor? Or no, it does play a huge factor. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, does that really matter in the movie? Like it doesn't come up that much. Well, so I, th- I mean, in some respect, yeah. In, in other respects, I just think of it, it's almost like a driving force because, you know, I, I think in some ways, like Frank is kind of vulnerable. Like you mentioned how Dorothy flips the switch. I feel like Frank kind of flips the switch in some respects too of how, you know, he's, he's this menacing, growling, like all, you know, the whole, his whole love letter spiel about a bullet from a fucking gun, you fucked mm-hmm. the whole thing. And, you know, when he's has sex, he's like this whole like, oh, baby, baby wants the whatever. And it's not like <sighs> weird talk. It's so creepy. Yeah, I don't Ugh. even want to say more of it. But like, I don't know. It's just interesting to me how like that this idea of like this, these like repressed people in a lot of ways just kind of being unleashed. I guess that's my sort of takeaway from it. Yeah, I think I think that's it. You know, Frank has so much power in real life and then when he's having sex he kind of gives it up but still has it whereas dorothy is just so repressed and controlled that she she has to find power somewhere yeah i think that i think that's it 
Um, and, you know, I, I want to talk about a little bit about, uh, you know, slow, the slow club on route seven. It, it kind of reminded me, of course, Mulholland drive came out after this, but it did remind me a lot of those scenes in Mulholland drive with the lady singing on the stage. Mm-hmm. Um, my first question, which might be the most important one here, uh, where do you stand in the debate between Heineken and PBR? <laughs> Paps blue ribbon. I'm all about PBR. Um, it, you know, I, I watched this. And he, he screams that he screams PBR. And I was like, am I watching my dad on screen? Cause my dad was a huge PBR guy. My sister and I got him uh, th- this weird set of like a PBR stocking cap and scarf and blanket one year for Christmas. Um, so PBR has been a big part of my life. So I have to say PBR. Yeah, no, I, I'm with, I'm with you. I would definitely sit in the PBR. Um, part but you know what did you think on a more serious tone mm-hmm. uh serious note um what did you think of those those scenes in the club as you know we kind of have sandy and jeffrey very much out of place but like frank feel frank looks like he's been transported somewhere you know how mm-hmm. dorothy's on stage singing this i mean very emotional song this emotional ballad in a lot of respects and i can still see blue velvet through my tears um i mean i mean what did you think of that and how you know, I feel like in some respects, that's kind of her venting, I think, in a lot of ways. It definitely is. And then, you know, the second time he's there, he he watches Frank and sees Frank crying as she's singing the song. And I think this whole thing is just a turning point for all these characters where Frank is, it's one of the few times where he's really vulnerable and it's weird to see him like that to be open and afraid. And that might be part of why he's, he he's so controlling is that he hates being open and afraid and like showing this emotion. And that's why he, he takes his anger out on other people. And it's just that scene where they're there again is fascinating. It's really one of the most interesting in the movie. But then the the first scene where him and Laura Dern are sitting there is, it just feels like a really awkward first date. Every time I watch it, I'm like, he asks her about if she likes Heineken. And she's like, oh, I've never had it. And I'm like, I had that conversation like eight times on dates, you know? (laughs) Definitely, definitely. And it's interesting, like that element, of course, they end up, you know, professing their love for each other by the end of this film. But there's like this weird, like, it's not even a love triangle. It's like a love quadrilateral. And it's, and it's cause you got, you got, um, of course, you know, Dorothy and Dorothy and Jeffrey, then Jeffrey and Sandy. But then of course, Matt, I think, I think his name's Matt or Mike comes in, you know, uh, Sandy's, I guess, boyfriend. Um, and you know, he, he comes to beat him up. And then of course you see Nate, uh, Dorothy, you know, naked and beat up in his lawn. Um, what did you think of kind of the, the, I guess, young love dynamics in this film? I think it's really interesting how little screen time uh, Mike gets. Like he's in two scenes. He he's there at the football practice, and then he's there um, on the front yard. And it's like, I don't know what to make of that. Maybe just how little David Lynch cares about these people and about kind of young love. But I also think it's just fuel for the the fact that you know, Dor- not Dorothy, uh, Sandy and Jeffrey are kind of ripped apart at the beginning 
and they're slowly coming together and they have to come over all these other hurdles to find each other. Um, like he has to get through his struggles with, um, <clears throat> with Dorothy and with Frank to be able to see the light and not just to be tempted by the darkness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's even I mean, probably the crux of at least their relationship from that standpoint is the scene, you know, when, when he brings Dorothy back and she keeps saying he put his disease in me, uh, which again, yeah, so creepy. And we mentioned Laura yeah. Dern's uh, reaction shot in that, in that part, which is great. Um, but I mean, that's, I feel like that's one of the most horrific parts in this movie is just, you know, that, I mean, and we keep, we keep talking about the repression and just unleashing. I mean, you can't get more unleashed than just standing naked, like beat up and all that stuff. So I'm just curious what you thought. I know we've kind of talked about it earlier, but what'd you think of that scene in that moment and how she, that's like, she's at her most vulnerable in a lot of ways. That scene where she comes like walking out and she's just naked. It, it was one of the most horrifying things I've ever seen. It's just so bizarre. And like, it's one of those things where the movie doesn't make sense. Like, why is she there? Like, how did she get there? Like what happened? Um, and it never really explains it, but it's such a pivotal moment where everyone is out there most vulnerable because Jeffrey's been exposed right now. And also Sandy is realizing that kind of the way she's viewed her life and viewed Jeffrey is just shattered and you know dorothy is at her most vulnerable role because she's she's literally laid naked for everyone to see like she's shown all of her insecurities and all everything to these people and it's it, it's a moment of just true character revelation because you can see that sandy she's phased by it and she's deeply hurt but she still loves jeffrey and it shows kind of the fact that you know, she can see the darkness and see all the twisted things that this guy has gotten up to and still be like, I still love him. And I think that's a really powerful moment because it kind of shows that, you know, there's always something to be not just excited for, but that is worth it. You know, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't bring this up, but the joyride to Ben's place, you know, the classic line um, that's echoed in the halls of wherever um, AFI, maybe, you know, I'll fuck anything that moves. Um, <laughs> um, you know, and, and we talked about the kidnapping a little bit, but that's, you know, that's the moment when uh, Dorothy gets to see her, her, um, her son and at least her son and maybe her husband as well. Um, you know, we don't really get to see that reunion, right. You know, it's behind mm -hmm. closed doors. And uh, Brad Dorf's character is listening in, and I mean his his hairstyle. This is incredible, yeah. um, but <laughs> so eighties. But um, you know what? What did you think? What did you think of that? You know, having that reunion there, and also just that the whole candy colored clown they call the Sandman, a whole song and dance. And you know, Frank is Frank is like in awe of Ben in a lot of respects, and he keeps calling him so suave, so suave. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like he almost wants to be him in some respect. I, what did you think of that moment? That's another one of those things where each time I think about it, I'm like, what does what is this? Like, what does this mean? I really don't know what to make of the candy color clown and all of these moments. 
but to your first question of, you know, what do I make of the, the reunion? It's one of those things where you mentioned voyeurism. And I feel like this whole movie is from Jeffrey's perspective, like other than the intro, intro where we see all the serene uh, landscapes, everything is from Jeffrey's perspective. Like those shots from the closet, like the scenes involving Frank and Dorothy we're only seeing from his perspective. They don't cut to other angles. It's just what we can see through him. And he doesn't see the reunion. He's forced to, to deal with these kind of lunatics. Like I, I love when Jack Nance comes up in his face and he's like, I'm Paul, you know, like he doesn't get to see this beautiful moment between a father or a mother and her son, because he's kind of trapped in a really low point and i think that's part of the coming of age aspect of this story where he's he can't get out until he's ready and he has to get knocked around a few times to really be able to see the mistakes he's made i feel like while blue velvet is puzzling and a bit disgusting Taylor says that the film is still engaging enough that you won't be able to look away. It is a really messed up thriller noir that will confuse you and astound you, but carry you emotionally throughout the whole film. And you'll be disgusted, but you will also want to know more. The entire way through, you'll be like, this is the most disgusting thing I've ever seen. Like, you know, you know about the Frank scene. Like when I first watched the Frank scene, I was like, this is the most disgusting thing ever, but I want to see more. I have to know what is going on. You, you are never going to know what is going on and you're going to want to. And that's one of the things that like, you got to watch this movie if you haven't. Next up, arguably David Lynch's most acclaimed film. Hi, my name's Nat Hoops and my favorite movie is Mulholland Drive. Nat Hoops, an aspiring filmmaker himself, says his relationship with movies has evolved pretty drastically over the last few years. I've loved movies since I was a kid. I was always like filmed by my dad, like on his like high eight camcorder. Um, so I'm a big fan of like home movies and stuff. But I, I started like writing plays in high school and then I got into filmmaking um, at the end of high school. And I've recently just graduated from uh, Northwestern University where I was a major in film and psychology. So I, I really became a, a filmmaker, which kind of, I mean, stemmed out of my love for movies. But uh, yeah, I mean, it, I, I've become sort of bitter to it recently because it's so hard to get a job in the film industry, uh, especially during COVID times. So uh, yeah, me and movies aren't getting along right now, but hopefully we'll be back together soon. <laughs> Um, yeah. you know, I, when I first, when we were texting back and forth, kind of scheduling this, I know I had mentioned to you that you were the first person to, um, suggest or propose a David Lynch film. Uh, yes, that's interesting. About that. Um, just what is your relationship to the filmography of one, uh, David Lynch? Uh, well, it started off when I was like 10 years old or so. And my parents got like the whole box set of Twin Peaks and, I was definitely too young to be watching Twin Peaks and it scared the living daylights out of me. And, but I loved it when I was watching it. I was like, this show is so 
fascinating and like something like I'd never seen before. And it was such like a refreshing feeling. And my dad also showed me a racer head, which when I watched it, when I was like 14 or so, I like didn't get it at all. I was like, this is weird, whatever. But then I, I really started getting into David Lynch, like at the end of high school, when I was like, I, I rewatched Twin Peaks with my friends and I was just like, you guys have to see this. And it was awesome. And I was like, wow, I remember how good this show was. I should check out David Lynch. And then I started watching all of his movies and I've seen basically everything except for Inland Empire, which is his newest, but I love all of it. It's just so, I mean, it's, it's definitely hit or miss. It's like within films too. Like even the greatest films have like some pretty cringy moments, I'd say, but he's really walking the line between like, profoundness and meaninglessness and i really like that and i i've as i've started making my own films i've definitely been inspired by lynchian ideas of how to tell a story um and i love the open-endedness of it and i actually took my my the last class i took in college was a class about david lynch mm -hmm. so I, I took a whole quarter learning about like him and all of his films and he's he's just like I think he's one of the most genius creatives that's alive today, maybe of all time. <laughs> yeah, no, I don't blame you. I know uh, Inland Empire is like one of those movies that's like impossible to like get your hands on. Basically. Yeah, I don't even know where to watch it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's another thing. Um, you mentioned David Lynch class. How was that? Um, I mean, was it, how did it differ or did it differ from your own personal experience of just discovering his films and kind of, I guess, taking it all in? Well, it was interesting watching it from an academic lens especially like getting to like actually I mean I was mostly living in my bubble of being like oh David Lynch is so awesome but some people in my class like definitely had issues with a lot of his films and it was it opened up to like a new idea of like wow we can definitely be critical of a lot of moments in his films um like a big criticism is just like that he's like never had a person of color <laughs> in any of his movies ever so that was interesting to think about. But yeah, it also like gave me definitely contextualized a little bit more about like who he is. Um, and you always like, whenever you hear about these crazy creatives, you always assume that they had some like weird childhood or grew up like doing weird stuff. But he like was like pretty normal. And it's it's interesting to see just like how you can emerge from that. And in the, his first film, Eraserhead, he spent like, five years making right it's like a student film and so that was really interesting to me as a student like imagining like working on the same student film your senior thesis for like five years and then it end up, ends up being like this huge cult hit so that was in inspiring to me just because like wow that would be awesome <laughs> as for the Mulholland Drive pick well I watched Mulholland Drive for the first time I'd say like five years ago or so and as soon as I like, as soon as it ended, I really like didn't know what to think about it. And it was one of those movies where like, I was like, okay, I have to read about it after watching it so I can like appreciate it more. And it was, it was one of the rare experiences where like, I actually like read stuff and I was like, you know, there's so much like crap out there where like people are like theorizing about David Lynch films and stuff. But th then there was like real like hidden stuff in there and you realize like how, how layered it is and how complex it is 
and I gained so much more appreciation after just like reading about it and reading about what people think about it. And then I, I've watched it again, like several times. And it's just like one of the most unique experiences. And I, it's like, I, I would classify it as the least boring movie ever. And in terms of just from the beginning, there's just like tension and the tension does not go away like ever. And it it's, can be like, so terrifying at some parts and also just like so funny at some parts but I think the acting is phenomenal and it's a weird like sort of acting to act poorly if that makes it's like the the camp element of uh, Naomi Watts's character it's just like so campy and yet it, it somehow works it's and it works even better once you get to the third act of the film and you're like okay this is there's more to this than I had originally thought and then you you kind of realize what the whole like what the whole deal of the film is. From two thousand one, Mulholland Drive, written and directed by David Lynch, follows aspiring actress Betty Elms, played by Naomi Watts, who's come to Los Angeles to make it big in the movies. Shortly after she arrives, though, Betty encounters an amnesic woman who's just been in a car accident. While Betty and the woman, who adopts the moniker Rita after seeing a Gilda poster on the wall, investigate the matter further, there's also trouble brewing on the production side, as Adam Kesher, played by Justin Thoreau, is struggling with the casting process for his new film, and is being pressured by a shady group to cast a particular actress. But as both Kesher and Betty find out more information, their stories become intertwined, and not everything is as it seems especially regarding the identities and relationships of Betty and Rita. Mulholland Drive, which earned Lynch his third career Best Director Oscar nomination, is a surrealistic noir that examines fame, the machinations of the film industry, and dreams versus reality, all with arguably one of the greatest twists of all time. And, you know, I feel like sometimes with those movies, like I think of, especially... Nowadays, maybe with like a Christopher Nolan film or Denis Villeneuve or something like that, you know, those films that, you know, like you mentioned, like those layered films, especially when you get to the end, whether it is maybe an M. Night Shyamalan type twist of some kind, you know, you're like, oh, shoot, that's what this all was about or something yeah. like that. I see dead people, you know, something like that. You yeah. want to go back and watch it. Uh, in this particular case, you say it's one of the least boring films ever made. What about Mulholland Drive in particular kind of rewards rewatchability, kind of rewards or even kind of pushes you to want to revisit it time and time again. The reason I like it is because it's so rewatchable. And because once you get to the end, you realize you can watch the movie in a completely different way. But I think it's weirdness and quirkiness and just like all the like detailed characters that are like so unpredictable and like just like eerie. It, it like, the, I mean, I talked about the tension earlier, but it, there's just like also a level of weirdness where like literally anything could happen and anything like, because it, it's not bound in reality and the laws of earth. It's, it's bound by the laws of whatever dimensions David Lynch is traveling through. And so like watching it, as soon as the like weird stuff starts to happen, you're like, wow, that I have to keep watching because what else could happen? And a lot does happen throughout this strange and beguiling story, which Nat and I attempted to untangle during our conversation. You know, we open with that jitterbug, that swing. Yep. The jitterbug yes. swing dancing number, you know, Betty, I'll keep putting that in air quotes, Betty yes. uh, with the parents, um, you know, 
and we get that car crash, you know, the head on head on collision with Rita, you know, stumble down the hill. I mean, what did you think just even whether it's the first time you watch it or even just revisiting just that opening, you know, Lynch, obviously one of his, uh, you know, trademarks is the surrealism and the surrealist aspects. Um, but just opening the film this way, uh, what did you think of that choice? I, I love it. I mean, I, I love Angelo Badalamenti's like score and everything because he's like a genius composer. And the, the opening song, there's like, I mean, it feels like like fun and like bouncy, but there's like some sort of like hidden element of like an eeriness that you really just instantly feel. And you like, I mean, there's, the, there's colorful dancing and whatever. And you like the first time watching, you're like, I have no idea what this movie is going to be at all. Um, but then the the car accident happens. And I just think the the idea of someone who's so like terrified and doesn't know who they are and yet has this is in this situation where they have a purse full of money is super fascinating. And then also just like the coming to Hollywood bit is just like a, I mean, the, the wonder in Betty's eyes is like so fascinating. Mm-hmm. And then there's that one specific shot that you probably remember where the, the two, I forget their, their relationship to Betty, uh, aunt and uncle or whatever, are like in the back of the car and they're just like smiling and like patting each other for like an extended period of time. And you're like, what, what was that? And then you're, it, it, yeah, it really is captivating like from the very beginning. Um, yeah. So I want to, I want to get a little further into the surrealist aspect because, you know, one of, and you, you brought it up earlier, but you know, one of the more, famous infamous i don't know exactly how to describe it scenes in this movie uh is the winkies uh yeah. scene, you know and and that really kind of sets up what kind of ride we're in for it right you know how, yeah. how we're gonna play with dreams and how we're gonna play with uh memory and stuff like that and so you know how he opens up with i had a dream about this place and he came here to get rid of this god-awful feeling and we see the i don't even know how to describe it, monster crazy homeless yeah. whatever i don't know how to describe it really uh person that pops out the thing that pops out from behind the dumpster i mean you know i I think we probably gained some clarity as we reach the end of the film with that yeah but just even that idea of really introducing the surrealist aspects in that way and through a very i mean you know there there aren't really many jump scares in in this movie but that's definitely i would say one of them that, uh, yeah, that jump scare is like one of the most traumatizing jump scares Yeah, <laughs> for like yeah. me as a kid, definitely. Yeah, no, but I mean, what do you think of just even that moment and just how Lynch, you know, he's, he's really playing with uh, dreams and how horrific, you know, they can, you know, they turn into nightmares. Yeah, well, I, I think that one of the most interesting parts about that scene is that you literally are told what is about to happen and it's up to you to like believe whether or not it's like gonna actually happen and they like recreate the dream and he's like there's someone behind this dumpster and you're like okay i'll go with the camera and go up to this dumpster and see what's behind it and every he's telling you that there's someone behind the dumpster and then someone's behind the dumpster and you're like oh my god i wasn't expecting that somehow even though i everything was pointing towards it happening um and it's also happening during broad daylight which is like weird for one of those jump scare scenes and also just like in the middle of a parking lot like behind a dumpster like that's not a place you're normally like terrified of but now it like (laughs) is in my head to be like oh what's behind this dumpster in this parking lot all right so forgive me nat but i'm gonna jump around a little bit kind of as this film jumps around um so i want to talk about this film's relationship to stardom 
right? You know, Betty, you know, she's kind of got her head in the clouds from Deep River, Ontario. You know, I'd rather be a great actress than a movie star, but sometimes people end up being both. You know, she wants to call the cops, but, you know, she wants to do it to have that thrill of like being in the movies, right? You know, the audition scene, I think is probably, you know, a standout scene for me, just how they like, don't play it for real until it gets real. Um, You know, just even through the character of Betty or even through Kesher's storyline, just how do you feel like this film kind of attacks that idea of, you know, people going out to Hollywood trying to get famous? Yeah, I mean, it's it's brutally honest, which I think is what David Lynch achieves most of the time throughout his films is, is that he shows you the harsh reality and that reality is that most people go out there and don't succeed and it's not a happy experience for a lot of them um and in their head it can be like fantasizing about all these th- good things that are going to happen to you and you getting the part and whatever and that's not a reality for <laughs> most people that go out to la like literally like probably like 95 percent of them so it's yeah i mean it's it's hard to watch um once you realize like what the situation actually is but I, I think that the audition scene is also super fascinating because it like really like sort of kind of takes you out for a second in like a good way where you're like, okay, Naomi Watts is like acting more real than her character has been acting the rest of the film. Like she only seems like a real person when she's like actually doing that scene. And then the rest is like, okay, she's obviously acting as Naomi Watts doing this camp performance. And, but that moment has you so locked in and you're like, wow, this is the real her sort of, and you can like sort of see like, I mean, obviously, I mean, not obviously, but my theory is that it's all in her head, which I mean, it's pretty obvious to me, but that fantasy of just like killing it in the audition and just her idea of how amazing she did really hits you once you figure out what's going on. Yeah. And the seeds of Diane Selwyn, but we'll get, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. Um, I also want to talk about just this idea of, um, you know, the Ryan entertainment, right. You know, the Castigliani brothers and Kesher, Mr. Roke, uh, you know, kind of, I feel like it's almost Lynch kind of taking that a step further of like, you know, kind of showing how the sausage gets made in a way, you know, the kind of a a little satire or a, you know, a a little insight at the film industry. And so I'm I'm just curious what you thought of that aspect. You know, I know it's kind of set against this, like, oh, you need to, Kesher needs to cast this one girl, needs to cast Camilla Rose. But just what did you think of how Lynch kind of unpacked that idea of just how kind of farcical sometimes the film industry can be and how movies are made? Yeah, well, the, the first time watching it, I like actually really didn't like all the scenes with Adam Kesher. I was like, okay, I don't like get it at all. Like this feels like just like a tangent that doesn't really have any like connection to it. It felt like a different movie. I mean, it's it sort of, I mean, we can talk about how Mulholland Drive is like supposed to be a TV pilot and turn it into a movie anyways. Um, but it felt like, like a different part. But then once you know everything, you can realize like, okay, there's a reason that I'm seeing all of this. Um, and it's sort of like a fantasy of all these bad things that can happen to Adam Kesher because he kind of didn't cast you and fell in love with you. You were in love with, and you can fantasize all these terrible things happening to him, like his wife cheating on him and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, the, the way the film industry works is pretty, I mean, it's a kind of a parody of the film industry itself and in that like everything's sort of fixed. Um, and David Lynch like knows that, um, and also he's, he's complained a lot about like not having final cut in his films. 
and it you can see just him sort of parroting all these like executives like being like we have the final say like we get to pick the actress um and david lynch is like kind of being like yeah it's not necessarily the director's choice all the time but you know i want to jump i'm you know i told you i'm jumping around a little bit but um i wanted to go back to uh, this film's noir influence, right? You know, yes. this is a noir in a lot of ways. Sure. And, um, you know, the, a lot of the, the I, I don't know if it's the main storyline, but one of the main storylines is, you know, what happened on Mulholland Drive? You know, what yeah. happened, you know, Rita gets her name from seeing that Gilda poster, I think in the bathroom or a wall or yeah. something. You know, we see the purse, you get the, that fat stack of $100 bills, this blue key, we don't know what's going on. Yeah. Amnesia's at work. Um, we don't know who Diane Selwyn is. We're kind of going through this. What did you think, just even on its face, just how how this film kind of deals with, you know, some of the, I guess, noir tropes and also just that mystery as it's kind of unfolding? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting how it puts the sort of detective work that would typically be done by like police officers or whatever. And they're instantly like, oh, we can't go to the police, blah, blah, blah. And it puts the hands into one, a, an actress who's just the sort of this like archetype of like positive, happy girl and she's the one in charge of like saving or helping this woman find out who she is. And there cannot be like a worse person to help you out there. It's also just like such an unexpected, like relationship that sort of buds like pretty slowly, I'd say um, throughout the film. And that's definitely unexpected. um, I think for most viewers, but that part is pretty beautiful. I mean, it's got the romance, it's got the mystery. It's got, I mean, not one mystery, but like several mysteries going on at once. And from the like first 20 minutes, you're like, you are, are automatically thinking about a hundred different things, like what is going on. And he wraps all of them up in the end too, which is great. Like you don't get that all the time with like David Lynch movies or you do, but it's in a way that goes right over your head a lot of the time. But yeah, I mean, the noir elements are like pretty heavy. And that's sort of like a lot of like David Lynch's stuff is just sort of mixing the sort of camp soap opera kind of noir stuff with some surrealist stuff, which I think is somehow just like a combo that works super well. Um, and it's literally the Lynch style Lynchian. And, and I feel like I'm glad you brought that up because I feel like one of the best. Uh, well, I guess there's two moments. So one I wanted to go to is uh, the Silencio uh, seeing when they first go to sleep yes. at 2 a.m. and no, no, I bonda, no, I bonda, you know, and they, they even say it's all recorded a tape and illusion. What did you think of that scene and how it kind of, like you said, it kind of mixes all those elements together? Yeah. I mean, I, I love that scene. It has so much like deeper meaning, um, which you also don't realize till later. And that like everything is like sort of not real in this reality. And it, it's really like, a confusing moment but also that the song just gets you like really emotional for some reason you're like why am i like tearing up right now like most people don't even know spanish so they don't even know what the song is about necessarily and it's just like i mean david lynch always has like a musical performance in his films he loves music and loves performances but that element is it's like really just like a touching moment in a way that like you're like why is this touching it's like weird <laughs> So, and one quote that I, I remember learning about in like my David Lynch class, not quote, but like idea is that like the Lynchian style is just like having you kind of stuck between like laughing and screaming <laughs> and just like the sort of like the line that is like, so like gray 
and you're just like constantly in this tension between the two where you're like this is so weird i want to laugh it's like pretty funny between like this is like terrifying or or sad or stuff like that but it's it's the really the the mixture of the good and the evil that is so well done in my opinion yeah and you know i I think that like you mentioned the romance i feel like in a way and maybe this is his own doing to an extent but i feel like david lynch you know his films feel like you know with the surrealist aspects of like that maybe you don't really look at to it look to them as you know being heartfelt or very emotional but this i would argue this is a very heartfelt film uh, in a lot of ways you know and like you mentioned that romance and like i just even think of that moment when they you know, they have to disguise her hair or whatever. They give her the blonde wig. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that budding romance, as you mentioned, um, between Betty and Rita, um, you know, whether it's in her head or whether it's in reality, I'm just curious what you thought. You, you called it beautiful earlier. Um, what about it kind of makes it so beautiful and touching um, in this film? Well, I, th- I think the beauty is like, I mean, there's beauty throughout the film, but it really like comes into play at the end. I mean, everything wraps up in the third act, but where, where you really can truly see like Naomi Watts's characters, just like pure, like jealousy and anguish and just like complete yearning um, for this other woman. And the, there's the perfect dinner scene where she's just like staring at the two while they're like doing too much PDA and just the, the pure like hatred in her eyes. is just like, wow, this woman really is in love and it's completely unrequited. And that's what makes it so painful. Um, and then you realize like how she can imagine this world where everything is perfect and she falls in love in this super romantic way. Um, and you kind of realize that that's all just like the most like fan, the huge fantasy. And that's why it seemed so like perfect throughout the first half of the film. And so like happenstance and just like the, them two coming together and falling in love, like, it's just like this perfect romance. And you realize that that's not real, (laughs) which just makes it so much more heartbreaking. Uh, yeah. And I mean, let's go there, man. I mean, they're about two hours in, uh, there's a shift, right? And yeah. we kind of, we kind of figure out what's going on here. We figure out Betty is actually Diane. We figure out Rita is actually Camilla and yeah. you know, that blue box that we finally open up and we kind of go inside to figure out that a lot of this is a fantasy, as you mentioned, what did you think of, you know, that twist, I guess. And, and just that moment to like, as you like, as you mentioned, I feel like a lot of Lynch films, which even I know he kind of has turned it into a bit almost where like, he's not going to tell you what it's actually about. You yeah, got to figure it out for yourself. But like, I feel in a way he, like you said, he kind of tells us what's going on. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And he doesn't like feed it to you on a plate either. Like it, it takes you like several minutes to sort of be like, wait a second, this person has a different name this person is acting completely different than how they were acting earlier. And people's relationships are like completely different than what you just saw. And so you, you have to put the pieces together completely yourself. Like nothing is like, like, Oh, this is blah, blah, blah. This is blah, blah, blah. So there's that sort of feeling that you are like the detective in a way, which I love how like David Lynch gives you that sort of power to be the detective. But yeah, I mean, I, the third act is just like, it really like takes you off your feet and you're like, whoa. And then the ending happens and you're like, wow, that 
was rough. Um, yeah, so I want to get to that in a second. But first, and I hadn't really brought it up because he doesn't really tie back in until that ending sequence. But Joe, you know, the earlier there was kind of that vignette almost of him, you know, shooting the dude uh, to get that yeah. black book and then shooting the, yeah. girl, the lady next door and the janitor were kind of like, okay, what yeah. the hell does this all mean? But it kind of comes back around because we find out that Diane and Joe kind of set up this car crash, this yeah. Miller thing. So, yeah, exactly. I mean, just looping him back into the mix, you know, what did you think of that? And also just that element of jealousy, as you mentioned, that those seeds of jealousy that kind of compelled Diane to do such a thing. Yeah, well, that part's, like, really interesting, too, because, like, I mean, that's the funniest scene in the movie in the first half with the, the shooting, the vacuum, and whatever, shooting people through the wall. Like, that part's great, and you're like, okay, also, why am I seeing this? Who is this guy? And then you never see him again until the end, where you're like, oh, this is actually the hitman basically that she hired to kill camilla so yeah it it's it's weird to sort of put those together and be like why why did in her fantasy world why did he just shoot a bunch of people through the wall and end up getting himself in this sticky situation um and it's i think that part is sort of her fear that he would fail the job so miserably and that she would end up getting caught by the police or whatever and I, I think that sort of is, is manifested through Joe's sort of foibles and just failures and her lack of confidence in him, like is really just like shown there. Um, yeah. And, and I love those, those uh, close-ups of the, the nameplate on the waitress at Winkies, you know, yes, changes yeah. from Betty to, or Diane to Betty. Yeah. Um, you know, you mentioned the ending, but we can just go there now, you know, Diane shooting herself. Yeah. I know mean, it's full circle. Um, I read this online and I'm really curious what your thoughts are on this, Nat. I read online, it might've been a letterbox review or even an article, but they, they said, you know, this movie is really about a woman that, uh, that jacked off so hard that she killed herself. Um, just when you <laughs> that hear that, true. do you agree with that? What are your thoughts on that state? <laughs> I mean, yeah, in a way, like she really lusted after this woman so hard that she got herself in this crazy situation where she had to pay someone to kill her and then end up killing herself. So it's, I mean, it's the pure lust and jealousy and that that can be manifested through a self-pleasure I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, as on a, I guess on a more serious note, um, just this movie wrapping itself up in that way of, uh, you know, this almost unattainable, fa- not even almost this unattainable fantasy, right. You know, her, mm. How, how she had, you know, lusted after this woman and kind of lusted after this reality that wasn't able to manifest itself. And, you know, that idea of just her, you know, shoot, killing herself and how it goes full circle with, I think, ending with that, with another jitterbug S, S sequence and Silencio yeah. and stuff. Um, and I think Silencio might even be the last word uttered in the film. Yes, yeah. um, just, just, you know, that ending, right. You know, you know, and Lynch's choice to end it that way, you know, what, what, what do you think of that? I mean, it's, it's a, a tragedy definitely um, in the truest sense, but there's also just like this sort of twinge of like beauty to it as well. When you kind of like see them together above the city in this sort of like transparent heaven, like kind of way that, and it seems like they can almost like, like be together in death in this fantasy world and they'll, they'll always be together. Um, and that, in Diane's head that, that that's the only way they could be together is if she kills herself. Um, so that's, I mean, it's an obviously terrible tragedy, but also is sort of like 
well, this is what she wanted. She'll get to live in that fantasy world. There's also the technical side of things that make Mahalan Drive endure as one of Lynch's finest works, whether it's his color palette or yet another winning collaboration with composer Angelo Badalamenti. Well, I, th- I think it's one of his like most technically, I mean, it's his, his last movie that he made besides Inland Empire. And technically, I think it's the most like conventional, like film wise, like if you look at like a Razorhead and Wild at Heart and all that, those other films, like you're like, that's not really how people shoot movies. Um, but this one was definitely a lot more conventional and played with like close ups in a really good way and like with the camera movement as well like the first person stuff going to behind the dumpster i think it's great and it it really knows how to to make you feel tense <laughs> yeah and uh, the score i mean angelo badalamenti is his like go-to and it's become so like lynchy and it, it, it's a weird like combo between like these synth strings and this sort of jazz feel um that is like a, also a super weird combo um, but it works somehow. But yeah, yeah, I'm, I I love the way it was shot and all the sound, obviously. I mean, he, David Lynch is known for sound design, especially with like a razor head, which is regarded as one of the best sound design movies like ever. Nat says going in cold is the best way to experience Mulholland Drive, which may be rather difficult after listening to this conversation. Either way, it's still worth checking out as a standalone film and as a gateway to the wider world of David Lynch. I would say that that's a pretty good place to start with Lynch, actually. I think it's like, it's his most known film and it's his like last film, but I think it's like, it, in terms of getting the whole David Lynch experience, that's a great way to do it. And I would definitely go in not knowing anything about, I mean, obviously we talked about it, so you can't, if, if you're watching this, then you uh, you know stuff about it, but um, it's good to go in not knowing anything. And then afterwards, I'd say when you do more of your research um, about who David Lynch is and what the film is trying to say, and it's sort of, and then watch it again, I'd say. My name is Margarita Madu, and my favorite movie is Black Swan. Margarita Madu, a current KU student, says she remembers always loving movies, but didn't fully invest until her teen years. Like I never really dove into the cinema, like um, the experience of cinema, until uh, I was about fourteen or so in high school, and I really started to um, watch movies and. Um, I guess I started paying more attention to um, for screenplay. And then later on, I got into cinematography as well. And I guess just the other aspects, other key aspects of filmmaking, besides, you know, the plot, for instance, which is kind of always the obvious thing for people when um, getting into movies, like if it's, you know, um, generally if it's interesting um, for you to watch. So yeah, that was kind of how I got into it. I can't remember the first movie that I had watched that was really, that for me, that kind of served as a bridge between me and cinema. 
I think it was, I'm honestly not sure, but I know that uh, The Breakfast Club was one of the first movies that I had watched when I started getting into um, film. As for her pick, Margarita was initially leaning toward the film Mustang from 2015 before pivoting to Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan. So I think about Black Swan a lot more than I do think about Mustang. I think that was just my number one reason, because for years, I mean, I would tell people that that was my favorite film. Um, But I just had to kind of examine um, my behavior towards both films. And I looked at, you know, the films that I do think about most often. And Black Swan is one of them. Um, So that was kind of what led to my decision to change it to Black Swan. From 2010, Black Swan written by the trio of Mark Heyman, Andres Hines, and John J. McLaughlin, and directed by Darren Aronofsky, follows ballet dancer Nina Sayers, played by Natalie Portman, who is vying for the lead role in a revival of Swan Lake. While she ends up landing the role, it becomes increasingly arduous, especially as she has to be both the white and black swans. This takes a toll on Nina and her relationships with her peers, her mother, and the predatory director of Swan Lake, Thomas Leroy, played by Vincent Cassell. The emotional, mental, and physical toll overwhelms Nina, causing extreme anxiety and paranoia as she traverses the toxic work environment in pursuit of stardom. Nominated for five Oscars, including a win for Best Actress for Natalie Portman, Black Swan looks at the relentless pursuit of perfection, women in the arts, and the fragility of Nina's mental health. Do you remember uh, the first time you watched Black Swan? Yeah. I can't remember how old I was in high school. I was either in the 11th or 12th grade, and I had watched it with my sister, who had seen it before that day that we watched it. And I had also watched it with my friend, and we had watched it at night, I think around 7 p.m. And it was just, it was absolutely mind-blowing for me. Um, just watching that film and I think the best thing about it for me wasn't even just the film itself and what you see with the finished products Uh, I was also really really um, impressed to find out the level of commitment that Natalie Portman had poured into her her work on the on the film finding out that you know she had an issue with her voice and the way she spoke for a long time because she was a child star and um, she uh, a lot of film a lot of directors would tell her when she would go to auditions that she had a baby voice and she kind of had to she had a she struggled to to make her voice sound more mature and I think she had gone through some voice coaching and then when when Aronofsky, when Aronofsky had cast her um, he asked her he um, had uh, he had a talk with her and he you know I told her look, I know that this was a really long struggle for you having to be able to shake this off, but I will need you to employ that baby voice of yours again um, because it is very central to your character. And so she was very nervous to do that because she, I guess, was um, worried and afraid that she would... I guess, fall back into that voice and she wouldn't be able to, because she had worked so hard um, for so long to get rid of it. And I guess she was afraid that it would be hard to shake it off again. And then, of course, there's the obvious uh, training that she went through um, to be able to dance. 
um, that way. And I think also the, the workouts and the diets that she had to um, undergo and stick to was also part of that. That was uh, what really impressed me about the, the film and also the, the theory of the black swan. Um, you, you mentioned, you mentioned at the top of this that you had seen this, you've seen this film like three or four times. Uh, what about it? You know, cause it's kind of a hard watch to a certain extent. I mean, what about it makes it so rewatchable for you that you want to go back and revisit this? Um, so yeah, I think it's a film that I really could watch over and over again. I think the last time I had watched it, I'd watched it on the plane when I was coming, um, when I, uh, was coming back to school here in Lawrence. And for me, it's just that uh, idea of the obsessed artist and the, you know, the psychology of perfection and um, just how the, how uh, the movie explores, um, you know, how far someone is willing to go. And I think for me, I relate to that, not, not necessarily because I, um, employ the same methods and the same kind of um, the same level of commitment that the character uses, but I just I, I just get it. I understand it. Um, I understand where the character is coming from, and I understand that struggle that she faces, um, you know, the relationship with her mom, and also even the relationship with herself having to push past her limits. Um, and I think that really, for me, is just very interesting, just because I think a lot of us are like that really on the inside, testing your limits, reaching your breaking points, and also just the passion of it, because that is her passion, and that's what she wants to do for the, you know, for as long as she can. And um, for me, I just, I um, understand it. I understand where she's coming from. And I just, I also just have a lot of respect for people who um, commit to their arts in those kinds of ways. Um, I find it impressive because I, I don't think I could ever do it really kind of um, to break yourself in order to um, get what you want. The cast features some notable names, Vincent Cassell, Mila Kunis, Barbara Hershey, and Winona Ryder, but there's one we have to highlight in particular, Natalie Portman and her Oscar-winning turn as Nina. Um, I thought it was impressive. I haven't seen that many of her films, to be honest, but out of all of the ones that I have seen, that, um, that performance of hers is my favorite, just because... In general, I find it very, very fascinating um, when actors employ a lot of these techniques when they are in the process of making a movie, when they undergo a certain role. I find method acting to be very, very intriguing. Um, and I do have a lot of respect for actors who do, who are method actors. I like transformation when it comes to acting because I do um, believe, I do see it as a craft. I don't think it's easy to act, especially um, with uh, roles like that, where you have a character that's probably completely, um, like a completely different person from you, the actor. And I think that, you know, everyone would kind of, every actor would kind of have to transform in a certain way in order to tell the story of the character as 
truthfully and as genuinely as possible. And so with that, I think there's different levels of transformation and those kinds of transformations, physical transformations, even mental transformation as well. You know, it's just incredible, especially because I don't think that all actors do do that necessarily. Not everyone has to. There's certain roles that will call for it, like that. Um, you know, um, when actors are playing athletes and they have to uh, get in shape for those roles, the transformation is obviously going to have to be done. But um, when I see that, I think it's just incredible um, in general, especially when it poses risks to the actors. I think that um, that risk that actors do take um, when they transform is always very fascinating to look at because I, you know, not everyone would do that or not everyone can do that. And I think it just, that transformation that she went through, for me, it just shows the level of commitment that she had to um, that character and that film. Uh, We've talked about it a little bit, but, um, you know, this film, as you kind of mentioned, deals with that, uh, that pursuit of perfection, right? You know, that, that obsessive, you know, that obsession, I guess, to just be perfect, right? You know, and how uh, sometimes, you know, like her, for example, uh, when she's like training, you know, she'll break her toenail and like, and they talk about, you know, you're working yourself too hard. Um, I, I was just curious what you thought of how this film kind of deals deals with that pursuit of perfection and how, you know, sometimes if you give yourself to something like that in the pursuit of it, how it kind of can destroy you. I think that um, the film just having all those um, scenes where she's in pain, like for instance, her breaking her toenail, it's like, uh, you know, it makes you flinch. I liked that Aronofsky did incorporate scenes like that because, you know, like I said, with performers um, and artists, everyone else, we all just see the finished product and we don't see the process. And um, I think for something like that, like ballet is very hard and it isn't, you know, um, the polished, the polished performance always looks, uh, you know, kind of nice and, um, like pretty and you see um scenes like that and you see her going through all these things and it's not that it's at all it's grimy it's uncomfortable you know you know there are a lot of these things that you would see and you you know you think are gross for instance and i think getting to see that kind of really just shows that it shows that it's really that it is really layered um, for the performer and for the artist, no one really sees um, the struggle and, you know, the behind the scenes that where things do not look pretty. And so I think uh, with those scenes, it kind of just gives you a lot more um, respect for the artist and for the character. And um, it also just shows the humanity, I would say, of it. Um, and, you know, you know, there, there's a couple of different points about um, in this film about like women in the in the arts. Right. You know, and, and the first thing I wanted to touch on there was uh, the character of Beth. Right. You know, how she went on a writer's character and how she's kind of aged out. Right. You know, she's kind of forced into an early retirement. I was just curious what you thought of that aspect and how 
you know, especially in the arts, it's a very real thing of women kind of being aged out of roles. I'm not sure if it was before um, I saw the film or after I saw the film that I had heard of um, this case where a ballet dancer in New York had kind of come forward about, um, come forward with her experience with um, sexual harassment by um, her boyfriend, who was also a dancer at the Institute, and how the, um, the Institute had kind of just like blackballed her um, and how she had to leave. And I think she didn't dance for a while and I kind of knew that ballet did have that um, side to it, especially for um, female dancers. Um, in a way, it can be very predatory because they do get into it so young. Um, and you do see that side in the film with um, Vincent Cassell's character, who comes off as very, very uh, creepy and uh, Natalie Portman's mom had um, spoken to her about, you know, he has a reputation. Um, and that was, I think, kind of how uh, Winona Ryder's character got a lot of the roles, I guess, because of the relationship that she had with Vincent Cassell and how he kind of exploited her in that way. And then, of course, when she got older, it was like, yeah, we need a newer model. And ballet is one of those industries where, you know, the younger you are, the better. I mean, one of the reasons why they do get into it so young is because um, supposedly they peak when they're, I don't know, in their, te- in their 20s or in their teens. And I think that it also just kind of shows that dark side of ballet, which is like any other industry where any other industry where your physical appearance is kind of dictate, dictates your value, um, especially for women. Because ballet for a long time, it's just been, you know, you have to be skinny and you also have to be young. And so it kind of does expose the industry for what it does really to women and how it's uh, just like how they're just cast away when they're older. And it is very similar to the film industry as well as um, music as well. And even with the fashion industry um, where you're, physical appearance kind of dictates your value. Um, so that I think that the movie showing that was really interesting. It was also very good that it did show that because there's a lot of layers to um, the industry. And that's just one of the, one, that's one of its sides um, that we got to see. And so I liked that. Yeah. And I think that physical peak thing kind of applies to gymnastics as well. Um, yeah. You know, there, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the predatory aspect of this because, you know, with Vincent Cassell's uh, Thomas and Leroy in this film, you know, there's that scene after the audition, you know, she doesn't get the role um, and yeah. basically back in the office, you know, kisses her, she bites him, all that. You know, you know, where do you feel like, and whether it's within the movie or just even the, like the film industry, where do you feel like is the line between you know, like when directors push actors or even other actors push actors, like for that performance, for that extra level, like, I guess, I guess, where do you, where do you feel like is the ethical line for that? Do you mean where, for, um, for instance, how she like wore lipstick to get the role? Yeah. And even, even just like him, him kissing her and then she bites him and that like shows that she deserves the role, basically putting her in that uncomfortable situation. Like, where do you feel like is the ethical oh. line for that? Yeah, I think that um, with ethics um, in these industries, because not everything that is um, legal is ethical, it is very hard for that to be dictated. 
especially because um, with um, film, you know, you kind of doing something like that, that is unethical. It's not like there's a board out there that will review it and then say, okay, you lose your license to make movies um, because you're not practicing good ethics like, like it is for medicine or journalism. So I think that it is really hard to determine that. And I think, especially as we've seen with um, the Me Too movement and um, with a lot of um, important people um, up there like Harvey Weinstein kind of being exposed as predators, you know, it shows that the line really is hard to determine, especially when men are the perpetrators and women are the victims because a lot of people will know about all those things that are going on. And that's also the same thing with ballet. People know what's going on, um, that all these things are happening, but no one is like saying anything because the people in charge don't care. And so I think the ethical line would kind of be drawn by the audience because the audience, film audiences are the customers and they're the ones paying uh, to see the movies. And they're the ones who are also essentially paying the salaries of the people who work in film. And so if they don't like it, then they decide not to see your next movie. And then you kind of lose your business. And that is kind of what happened with the Weinstein Company. So I think with that, um, with that instance, the ethical line is blurred. And essentially, it's up to film audiences to kind of decide what they think what they think should be allowed and what shouldn't be allowed because they're the ones who um, are kind of paying the filmmakers. But within the industry where the ethical lines are drawn, that's um, very hard. And essentially, I think it would only be the groups and the organizations set up to protect uh, employees on sets. Those groups would uh, be the ones to decide as well but there isn't much real consequence for violation of these ethical concerns just because, you know, the people in power um, don't really care. How do you feel like um, Nina's, excuse me, uh, how do you feel like Nina's anxiety and kind of her mental health are portrayed in this film? It's very, her anxiety is very visual because she does, uh, we do see her hallucinating a lot. And even at times, there's times in the movie where it's very hard for the audience to even be able to decipher what is real and what isn't. Um, Like, I think the scene that happened between her and Mila Kunis in um, the bar when they went out, you know, you kind of think that's real until we see her um, in her bed in the morning and we realize that that didn't happen. And we actually, you don't even... um, know that Mila Kunis's character wasn't even real until the end. And then you find out that that was just um, a, another hallucination that Natalie Portman had. So I think her um, anxiety is very visual. And Aronofsky shows that through the hallucinations and the images of, you know, her growing feathers, her turning into a swan, her seeing, her seeing figures. I think how visually it's done allows the audience to really engage with her because it does give you anxiety as well. Uh, For me, I had a lot of anxiety just watching it. And um, 
the way those hallucinations are set up, they're not distorted in any way. They're very clear. And you actually, um, the audience members actually also think that those hallucinations are real. So they're kind of in it with her just because of Aronofsky's procedure in showing that. No, for sure. And, you know, you brought up the, you brought up the idea of the white swan and black swan thing. Uh, and and I, I wrote down what uh, Thomas Leroy says at the beginning, you know, we all know the story of Virginia girl uh, trapped in the body of a swan. She desires freedom, but only true love can break the spell. Her wish is nearly granted in the form of a prince, lustful twin. The black swan tricks and seduces him. White swan end up, ends up committing suicide, um, which of course is kind of the end of this film. Uh, well, how did you, what did you think of the kind of, um, you know, I guess rivalry that came out of that and, you know, how a lot of the time, you know, I feel like Nina kind of put herself so far into this role that it almost kind of ended up destroying her. So, I mean, I know you brought up method acting earlier, but how do you, how do you feel like, you know, how she kind of ended up taking the work home in a lot of ways? And how do, how do you feel like this role kind of played a, a pretty big part in her demise? I really enjoyed how it went um, and how, you know, the arts, the whole, um, the thing about uh, the arts and the artist. And that line between an artist's art and their actual life. So I thought, for instance, just her having this project to that she was um, that she had to undergo, and her life kind of becoming her life imitating her art. I thought that was very interesting to see, just because of how I guess determined she was, and that determination and that. Um, transformation um, and her just pushing her limits her going that far was born out of the amount of anxiety she did have and she was afraid that she um, she was threatened basically that she wasn't going to that she wasn't going to be able to do it but that was what she wanted and so you know that was her main priority and um you know, it was like, oh, kind of whatever it takes for her. And so Mila Kunis' character was the embodiment of that. Mila Kunis' character was the threat. And, um, you know, you see in the end that Mila Kunis wasn't even real. And so that was another side of Natalie Portman's character that was, that, you know, her psyche created. And that was a visual representation at the end of the day, a visual representation of the line, you are your greatest enemy. So I think that her life um, imitating her art, Aronofsky choosing to go down that, um, go down that path is kind of uh, his way of having a conversation with the audience. And he's not really trying to tell, he's not really trying to, um, push any uh like ideology onto the audience he's just kind of showing his own weird and psychotic interpretation of it you know of the quote the life imitates art and her life imitating her art in that story um the whole movie is a very very extreme representation of that so i think that his decision to do that it's very, very intentional and very, very interesting. What do you, what do you make of the of the ending of this film? You know, the the final performance, um, and and you know how she kind of, I, I guess you know, and incidentally ends up killing herself. But 
What, what, what do you kind of make of the ending of this film? I was very shocked to see when she thinks she killed Mila's character and then she comes back into the dressing room and she doesn't find the body. And that for her is just very, very uh, confusing. And that kind of, that's kind of the beginning of, I guess, her world from the beginning of the film until that point, everything just unraveling what she's been going through, her um, mental state. And then she goes out to finish. Um, no, she was in the dressing room. She didn't find the body. And then she saw the stab wound on herself. Um, and she, that was when everything kind of unfolded for her. And she realized or at least I think she realized everything, but it's not completely, I don't think it's like a hundred percent clear, probably like 98 to 99% clear that she suddenly um, knows that Mila was never real. And all of the experiences that she had with her was just in her head and was a hallucination. And um, I think that that, ending of her committing suicide unintentionally and involuntarily is the the zenith so life imitating arts um the concept of the you know the story of the black swan and the white swan is explained at the beginning of the film um by the director of the institute and i don't know how much um her mind, how far, for how far back her mind travels and whether she actually thinks of the story or if she puts all the pieces, every single piece together. But I think that um, that Zenith um, was definitely intentional for the director to show us the extreme of life imitating art and her um, killing herself quite literally plays on the, um, idea of you kind of killing your old self to become your new self. And that would be, that's kind of what people talk about when they're talking about transforming, um, especially um, when you're trying to shift from one, um, this level that you're at to another uh, higher level that you're trying to attain the idea of killing your old self in order to um, move forward. And that's exactly what she does. And it just so happens that that is exactly that. It just so happens that that was the story that she was telling to the audience. Her story intertwining with her character's story is just really, really telling or really, really compelling to watch. Black Swan is surely compelling. And the visceral depiction of Nina's pursuit of perfection is a key aspect of Margarita's sales pitch. If you are interested in the psychology of perfection, the anatomy of the obsessed artist and ballet um, as well. This is a fantastic movie because it's a very, it's very, very, um, it's very mental. It's very much a mental experience um, when you're watching it because you are seeing a lot of these things that really are just happening in her head. And um, we are kind of placed inside of it with her and I think that it's done really well. I think it really hits the nail on the head with um, exploring with its exploration of those concepts. And finally, we'll look at another Aronofsky film featuring an obsessive artist. My name is Faith Maddox, and my favorite movie is Mother. 
Faith Maddox, an English major at KU, says that her love for movies has grown significantly over the past year or so. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, grew up watching movies just like every other person in America, probably. But I didn't really, I don't know, like I liked movies, but I didn't really get into them. But I started dating someone last year and he's a film major and every one of his roommates is a film major so in the last year I've just been like oh now I'm learning all these things about it and I'm it's just giving me a deeper appreciation for it although I had seen Mother like a long time before that and so now I really enjoy film as more of like an artistic expression especially because I'm a writer like I'm very interested in like the way that people construct scenes so I know now you had mentioned when we were kind of uh, setting this up that you feel especially drawn to the work of Darren Aronofsky. Um, why, why do you love his work and what about his filmography kind of speaks to you? Well, part of it, I think, is just because he's a really interesting person. You know, I love artists who discover what they want to do later in their lives, even though he was still pretty young when he figured out that he wanted to go into filmmaking. Um, I think that he just had a lot of cool experiences prior to that. And also, um, I made it a goal over the summer to watch all of his movies and I did not do that, but I've seen quite a few of them and I just really appreciate any kind of movie that I don't fully understand that it takes me multiple times to watch it and really grasp all of the things that they're trying to say. Um, And so I just think he's very blunt about things and that's kind of how I am. Like I like really dark stuff, honestly, um, just because I don't see a lot of that. I mean, you do see more of that now, I guess. And like, mainstream media but yeah i just really like him as for this pick faith was deciding between two semi-recent entries from aronofsky black swan and mother honestly it's mostly just because i've seen it a lot more i think i've only seen black swan twice and the last time i watched it was so long ago that i was like oh i really don't know if i could speak on it even though i really love that movie but i do like the way that all of his pieces like have kind of a conversation with each other thematically. There's another one of his called The Fountain that I watched over the summer. It's just a really weird movie. I mean, kind of everything he makes, like he talks about how he doesn't think that he, he doesn't think that he's made a good movie if the audience doesn't like boo or cheer. Like if they don't feel anything, then he's like done a bad job. And so I think all of his movies have to be extreme if he feels that way. From 2017, Mother written and directed by Darren Aronofsky, follows a couple looking to escape from the outside world, especially as the husband is looking for inspiration for his next novel. However, their lives are upended when uninvited guests posing as fans enter their home, pillaging their house and tearing the veil of their otherwise tranquil existence. As more and more people come into their home and their lives, this takes a great toll on Mother, played by Jennifer Lawrence, as she looks to protect her child, her marriage, and her home from outside forces looking to destroy or partake in it all. This enigmatic tale deals heavily with biblical allusions, including the story of creation, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and the birth of Christ, while also examining artistic struggle, climate change, and immense loss. You know, I I feel like, and, and I feel like I can definitely include myself in this, but you know, the first time that you see Mother is... I mean, this is such a cliche way to put it, but it truly is an experience. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that can go a lot about a hundred different directions, but how would you kind of describe uh, the experience of your first time uh, watching Mother? Um, I didn't like it, actually. The first time I watched it, uh, I was just so 
taken aback. I had never seen anything like that in my life. I think I was 17 when I saw it. So that was like three years ago, four years ago. I don't know. But um, yeah, so I remember sitting for like a solid 30 minutes after the movie in just complete silence because I really couldn't think of anything that would come even close to being not worthy of saying, but like, I don't know how you would follow up any kind of conversation when you watch a movie like that. It, it just confused me. And then when I looked up some of the things that it was about, like, then I started to appreciate it more. And every time I watched it since then, I just appreciate it a lot more. Um, and you kind of mentioned earlier that you, you're kind of drawn to films that, you know, make you kind of unpack the puzzle a little bit, you know, put the puzzle together yourself. Um, is that what brought you back to this? You know, what, what brings you back to Mother to want to kind of revisit it and go back and revisit this world that Aronofsky's created? I think that a huge part of it is just that all of the symbolism that's within it, you know, it being more like an allegory to the Bible. I was raised very, very, very like Christian. And so it was very funny to see all of the things that had been like hammered down my throat, you know, kind of satirized on film. I just thought that was really interesting. That's one of the reasons that I always come back to it. And I also just think it's a beautiful movie, like the way that he chooses to shoot all of it more or less from her perspective or just close-ups of like Mother's Face. I just think that that's so interesting. I love uh, all of the actors in it as well. So, um, Do you have a ballpark figure for how many times you've seen this movie? I think I've seen it four or five times. Like I haven't seen it a bunch of times. Um, and I actually have a really hard time picking just like favorite movies, but it's up there like for me in general. What also makes Mother intriguing and ultimately controversial is the buildup and eventual release rollout. Just reading up on it before this, you know, how Aronofsky had a 70 page script, had Javier Bardem, Jennifer Lawrence, they basically mapped it out before they even started shooting rehearsals and did like a, a two hour rough cut in like the Brooklyn apartment or whatever. And... Um, you know, as, as you mentioned, at the Venice Film Festival when this premiered, it just got hit with booze left and right. I mean, people just hated it. And, you know, Aronofsky, you know, he, I, I'm sure you're aware of this. He, he tweeted out that uh, the mother's prayer or whatever, he kind of setting people up like, I'm sorry what I'm about to do to you, that sort of thing. Like, I'm just curious, you know, kind of, I guess this is kind of off the screen in a way, but just what do you think of just this? kind of the, the buildup to this film and how Aronofsky was definitely trying, I feel like in a way to kind of push into that mystique, I guess, of kind of what this film entails. And I think that's super interesting because I was actually reading an article the other day about, you know, the posters even that like came out before the movie were very misleading, you know, like he really was not trying to give away very much. And I saw something that compared a lot of it to Rosemary's Baby. People really expected it to be like that, which in a way, like there are certainly connections that you could make between the two films. But I don't know. I think that's really interesting. I think that so much of what I hate saying like mainstream film or anything like that because I think that's just really cliche and sometimes really pretentious to say but genuinely a lot of like mainstream media is very look at this theme on a silver platter like here is everything you need to know about this film like without even having to think about it I mean look at Marvel movies like (laughs) that's a perfect example of that you know which no hate to Marvel movies I just personally can't watch them um but yeah so I don't know. I just appreciate anybody who makes you work for understanding it and almost makes you like hate them for it. I think that there's a certain level of beauty to that. It also doesn't help, at least with reaching mainstream or widespread audiences, that Aronofsky didn't name any of the characters. 
It's a respectable artistic choice, but a bold one nonetheless. You know, I mean, obviously, like, Jennifer Lawrence is the titular mother, but, you know, Javier Bardem is just him. And, um, and, and I think Ed Harris is just man, Michelle Pfeiffer is just woman, Donald Gleason's older brother, like, that's what I think. And I think there's, there's a zealot, there's a whoremonger, there's Harold, healer, all that stuff. And I know, obviously, that plays into the biblical aspects of it, but I'm just curious what you thought of that choice to kind of, you know, because I think in some films are, like, more character-driven, you know, that type of thing. But this film kind of feels like, to me at least, how Aronofsky definitely had a vision for this and all of them are kind of more playing towards that, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. It reminds me a lot. I'm actually in a screenwriting class right now. And a lot of what we talk about is based around the idea that you should form every scene that you write around like the plot or the central action idea, not even necessarily the plot. um, And that every scene should like work to serve like the larger picture, which definitely makes sense. But personally, I'm very much a character driven, like, kind of person. I'm just more interested in people than I am plot. But I think that the, the choice to not name characters, except for like the ones, you know, like you mentioned, who have like titles that are just titles, you know, they're not really names. Like you wouldn't know that if you didn't actually watch the credits or like I always watch movies with subtitles just because I, I'd like to, honestly. <laughs> and so I, this last time that I watched it was the first time I watched it with subtitles and I actually saw all of these titles it's like, oh God, like that is actually such an interesting like hint, you know, to not really upfront, like say that kind of stuff. I think that it's a really brave choice not to name your characters. Um, I've done that before with different stories and it's just not, <laughs> not good. Like unless you have like two characters, it just won't make sense. And so obviously film, you know, translates that a lot more differently, but I, I think that it's an interesting choice. And I actually liked that a lot. I think it's it's just so impersonally personal. Like you understand the things that he's trying to say to the point, you know, where art is all about putting other people into the things that you make. So people could definitely do that to an extent, but I liked it. I thought it was just more about, I don't know. It was really more about his vision and the allegory that he was trying to connect more than it was, I think anything else, which is good and bad, but. Um, and, and one of the interesting things, especially with, the you know the main duo of Javier Bardem and Jennifer Lawrence um, you know is the age difference between those two I mean and, and they don't even really do much to hide it at all and, and I've even read some interviews with Aronofsky and you know, how he he kind of was playing with that idea of the the older male figure like Hollywood history you know the older male figure and the young ingenue you know they had they have several lines in the film that kind of make fun of this you know your wife I thought it was your daughter and, you know, every relationship has their issues. And when there's a full generation between you, I can only imagine. Um, how do you feel like in this film in particular, Aronofsky kind of plays with that idea of kind of, I guess, a, a traditional trope in some of these films? I think it's really interesting to apply that trope to like a biblical-esque story. Like even though Mother Earth and God might, I mean, Mother Earth is, you know, younger in this like timeline of history in which, you know, whatever God you believe in, Christian God exists, whatever. Um, but I think it's really interesting because it makes so many, it just connects like a lot of the archaic, like gender role stuff with also like the modern gender trope kind of things. And so I thought it was really interesting to convey God, not only as like this powerful creator, but also as an older man, because, you know, historically, when we think about God, he's like some old white dude in the sky, which fair enough, I guess, if you believe that, like, I believe in something, but not that, I guess. And so I thought it was really interesting to do that. It almost just makes me think of like, 
I don't know the whole, I mean, we talk about like the immaculate conception. I think it's interesting also that like Aronofsky connects mother earth with being Mary and like that whole thing. I, I just always thought that was really, I don't know. It's just an interesting choice, I guess. I feel like I'm desensitized to age gaps. My parents were 15 years apart. Mm. And so there's definitely a huge power dynamic with him being so much older. But honestly, part of me thinks like, I think Darren Aronofsky is smart. Like, I think he's a great like director, great thinker, great writer. But I think part of me wonders if he's just not, it's not that he's not fully aware, but like maybe I'm reading too much into it. Like, I don't know if he can be fully cognizant of like the power differences. I don't know if that makes sense. Like as a, an older white dude himself. No, I, I, I think it does. And honestly, I feel like this is definitely a film. I'm not sure if you can read too far into it just because I feel like he, he purposefully is like going for a lot here. So I'm just curious. And I know you brought it up a couple of times, but um, being that you, you said you were kind of raised in this Christian background, how does that kind of affect your view of this film and what Aronofsky's going after? Um, honestly, I'll just compare it to my mom's interpretation because I have completely divested from like the Baptist church because that's how I was raised, very Southern Baptist. I grew up in the South and now I'm very like spiritual. Like I, a lot of my beliefs align with Buddhism. So to me, this movie is just making fun of like everything that like I kind of said was like just shoved down my throat as a child, even though I totally agree. Like we do mistreat the earth, like very clearly look at the last week and all the other stuff that's been going on, you know? Um, but at the same time, it was just kind of, it was almost more comical to me than anything. Like it was very like coming full circle and very satisfactory and seeing the Bible portrayed or biblical stories portrayed almost in like not a negative light, but almost very realistically because a lot of the stuff that people talk about or that's written about in the Bible is horrible. And when you're like learning it in church and you're like forced to memorize all these verses and these stories, like I don't think many people actually sit down and really consider like that if you had to experience a lot of this like shit that they talk about, like it would be horrible. And my mom actually watched this movie this week. Um, she said that she'd started it before and could never finish it, but she's watched it all the way through. And she was like, that was the worst movie that I've ever seen. Like, why did you rent this? <laughs> I tried, I told her, I'm like, it's about the Bible. And she was like, uncomfortable with that, which I think is really interesting. Cause I think it would make a lot of people who are heavily religious uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. Do, you, do you find there's some there's some value to that to kind of making people uncomfortable and having to confront some of these things oh yeah I firmly abide by the fact that like people should live in discomfort like being comfortable all of your life is probably the least helpful thing you could ever do and so I think I think it's good to make people uncomfortable I think it's really good to make people to to a certain extent like there are levels to being un, to discomfort but yeah I definitely think it's good for especially no offense but like very overtly religious or biased people i guess you know obviously i mean let, let's kind of get into this so like the biblical allusions and allegories you know he it, it's funny in a way because aronofsky doesn't really attack maybe attacks too strong a word but he doesn't really look at just one specific thing right you know michelle pfeiffer and ed harris are kind of this adam and eve figures and you know the gleasons are kind of uh, this Cain and Abel situation going on. Um, and, you know, obviously, you know, she's building this paradise. She even calls it paradise at one point, you know, the garden of Eden, you know, at the end, it's kind of baby Jesus and they, they kill him and stuff. Um, and obviously, as you mentioned, God and mother earth, I'm just curious what you thought of kind of the ambition 
of not only like, you know, obviously there's been, there's been biblical allegories in films since the beginning of time, but just, he basically is just, he's taking all these different ideas from scripture and so on and so forth and kind of all throwing them in this film. I really noticed this this last time that I watched it more than I had before. I kind of think that that's brilliant. It is extremely ambitious for sure, especially as, you know, the last like 30 minutes of the movie when all the people are in the house and stuff. It really like the pacing is nonstop, like pretty much. And you're going through basically witnessing actual, you know, condensed historical events room to room. Um, And I think that that's like, I don't know. I mean, people that aren't Darren Aronofsky could definitely do this, but I don't think it would have had the same effect purely because so much of his artwork is based on disorder and probably being almost too ambitious, which I respect because I am also too ambitious. And so I thought that it was an interesting choice. There are definitely things that like could be expanded upon, but I think you could say that about anything. I would rather someone shoot really high and like barely miss than to not try at all. No, that, that's definitely fair. Um, you know, and, and I'm glad you, I mean, I know I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, but um, you know, that ending that you brought up and I just have to ask. Um, so I feel like a lot of this movie is uh, hedonism is kind of playing a role in paganism and just how, like when they, when Ed Harris breaks the diamond, you know, that I guess kind of the apple in the garden of Eden type of thing. And, um, and how, you know, at the very end there, the, the kind of pillaging of the house, you know, there's that one line where she keeps going around asking them, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? And they say, proof that we're here. Mm-hmm. Right. And so, so I'm just curious, what did you think of that kind of final sequence and like the violence that was being portrayed, especially towards Jennifer Lawrence in particular, um, you know, how they kept calling her like a dirty whore and cunt and all this, all these terrible names and physically beating her almost to death before Avi Bardem kind of swooped in. Um, yeah, just what did you kind of think of the, I guess, disorienting finale or yeah, I guess finale of this film? Uh, the first time I saw it, I hated it. The part with the baby scared the shit out of me. Like quite literally, that's really when I was like, I can't like process this movie at all. But the line that you actually mentioned really stuck with me this last time I watched it about like proof that we're here. Because personally, since the pandemic started, I have like, progressively been feeling more and more of a fear of death, even though I've never, like I'm very comfortable with death and know a lot of people who have died. And so to me, when I was watching it this time and you know, all pretty much the last half of the movie is just death. Like everybody's fucking dying. The baby dies. Like it's, you know, it's supposed to be Jesus or whatever. But I think when I heard that line, you know, I started like looking at the movie very differently and being like a lot of the things that they're doing are so motivated by fear, like fear of meaninglessness, fear of death, fear of like retribution or fear of nothingness as a whole. And so the part where they like beat her and start calling her all of those names, like, I think it's really hard. Um, Like there's been a huge shift in art in general, like towards this, you know, humanizing the villains and like humanizing violence even because violence is like not not acceptable outside of certain contexts of like revolutionary power or struggle, I guess. But at the same time, like, I don't know, to me, I feel like the first time I watched it, I saw all of that and was just like, I fucking like hate humans and people and all these things. Whereas now I just kind of see it and I'm like, these people are like, I think he's trying to convey this huge sense of fear that's more prescient than ever. And it almost seems like the most human thing in the world, even though we should be we should redefine humanity, I guess. But yeah. 
Yeah, I, I just feel it, it's it's kind of like this weird tug of war, right? You know, because I, I know, especially in like the the Me Too era and, you know, representation and stuff and just how women, especially portrayed on screen, you know, especially with like rape scenes and scenes of violence. So I'm just, it, it's just, it's just hard for me. And I don't know, I don't really have all the answers, obviously, but it's just, it's just interesting to me to like watch a scene like that and kind of compartmentalize like the artistic vision, I guess, with like, holy shit, Jennifer Lawrence is getting her face beaten in and like ripping her clothes off. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's just a lot to, kind of a lot to process, I guess. I think that's totally fair. Like I hear that criticism to an extent. Like I think the Invisible Man also, this that came out this year hits on that a lot. Mm -hmm. my, my mom watched that, she's like, you can never watch this. Like it'll, it'll freak you out. Whereas now, like when I watched that movie and when I watched that scene in Mother, I think that to an extent, like we have become so, not even just like desensitized to violence, but obviously people talk a lot about like the glorification of death but it's like we see that like I think that there is a certain crowd of people that might watch a scene like that and almost feel like relief I mean people talk about theater and film being the catharsis of all like negative emotions as well like I think that that's important like there's a lot of studies that show that watching horror movies is actually good for you because you're releasing a lot of like adrenaline and even getting like a serotonin boost because you're going through all of that and so when I watch stuff like that, for me, like I've been desensitized to that stuff because I'm a woman, like, honestly, I mean, it's horrible to watch, but I'm also like, feel that, like, that's about all I can say, you know? And so I think to an extent, like, I don't know, people can watch that and still not rectify the fact that that's like real. Like, I think that it's almost just easier to deal with that and think that you're feeling empathy for them than it is to just go out and feel empathy for the people who are actually experiencing that. Not saying obviously that you do that, but that's just my interpretation of like a lot of scenes that depict graphic violence. Like you're forced to put yourself into those shoes without actually doing the work to put yourself in those shoes. No, I think that's totally fair. I think it's totally fair. As I've mentioned earlier, Mother also deals with the artistic struggle, fame, and the hubris that comes as a byproduct of all of that. He's, him, I guess, is his character's name. Uh, him is very, you know, protective of his, you know, artistic integrity. You know, he boards up his study at one point. You know, he has this kind of writer's block that's really plaguing him uh, throughout this film. And, you know, he, he basically conjures up Adam and Eve out of just looking for some inspiration. You know, of course, then they they have the baby and that's kind of the whole start of this i'm just curious what you thought of that that kind of depiction of the artist artist's point of view and kind of this study and also maybe looking because you know obviously god has been portrayed in many different films in many different ways more the traditional sense but looking at god as this as this artist of kind of creating all this life around him yeah I think that's a that's a great point. That is also something I thought a lot about this time and like the choice to portray God as a writer is really interesting because obviously as a writer, you there, there's like a Joan Didion quote that basically says this, you have to have a certain level of authority in like creating truth. Like that you are quite literally creating reality and a narrative for people to read. And so I think a lot of writers, especially successful writers like I guess God would be like having God complex because they have created a reality that they can get people to believe which is really interesting as far as the writer's block goes I totally feel that it really hammered in the fact that without 
the outside world, quite honestly. This is something I've been thinking about pretty much every day since the pandemic started, or really like, I don't know, there's a lot of connections that I've made from, you know, COVID and mother where I was just sitting there like, wow, this is really just making me think about so much that I was not thinking I would think about. But um, yeah, like the whole thing with, you know, Ed Harris showing up and that whole like vibe, like even though, um, you know, he says when he gets his idea that it's inspired by her saying that she's pregnant, I think that like, it's pretty clear that like maybe to an extent it is, but it's more the fact that he's created something than the fact that he's created something with her. It's more of like an, I've done this kind of deal. And so I think that the whole writer's block narrative really hammered in that like, if you don't have, honestly, I mean, you could put it in the context of being like traumatic stuff, but just any kind of external stimulation, like you will not be, like you will not be able to come up with material. I mean, maybe you're like, actually God and you could do that but God knows it could not be me so I really enjoyed though the fact that he was so like I mean Javier Bardem is an incredible actor I absolutely love him but you know the whole scene where he does board it up and he's just constantly stewing and upset about something I'm like yeah true like makes sense feel that (laughs) because it really does just eat away at you and I think the way he portrays that is like it's just excellent Oh, definitely. And and kind of the other side of that coin is we've kind of talked about this allegory for how humans have pillaged Mother Earth and how our relationship to Earth and how, you know, that that line at the end there, you know, I gave you everything, you gave it all away. Um, and how, you know, the house is kind of really, it's kind of a tightrope walk throughout this whole film, you know, how, how, you know, when she when she feels either threatened or betrayed or any really traumatic induced trauma induced emotions you know the house is kind of decaying more and more and kind of have that heart pumping in the center there um what did you what did you think of that element of this and how Aronofsky who I think to my knowledge is in is a pretty outspoken you know advocate for you know climate change awareness and like environmentalism and stuff like that um what did you think of that element of this film um I mean I saw it in within that context but I also saw it within the context of like like self-created environment. Like I thought it was really interesting to consider it almost as like a trauma of the body. Like, I don't know, but in terms of the environment, I mean, it is absolutely terrifying. Like the movie really does scare me for that reason. Like I love anything that really does terrify me to be quite honest, but I don't know. It's just very, I mean, he talked about it in the interview and like why he created this was just because he was feeling so much like existential dread with the environment and like violence that humans like perpetrate that, Yeah, it was just, I don't know, like, it is just really sad. (laughs) Like, I know that's not really, like, it doesn't really do justice to how horrible, like, the climate situation actually is. I think that there are very few things in my life. I'm very much the kind of person where I'm like, if I, I can't, like, remove myself from context or remove myself from the situations of everyday life, like, I'm going to throw myself wholeheartedly into everything that I do. But when it comes to, like, climate change and the environment, even though I'll do everything that I can, like, I mean, I was even reading something about this today, obviously, like 70% of emissions just come from 100 companies. Like, how are we supposed to feel hope when that's just a well-known fact and nothing's changing? Like, I, I, it's really, that's the reason that it's really hard for me to watch the movie, actually. The, the one reason that it's really difficult for me is just because it's almost too real. Like, I like things that are real with me, but I can't actually, I don't think I have the emotional capacity to think about the earth dying, like, okay, quick interlude. Can I talk about psychedelics for a second? Is that okay? That's, uh, yeah, that's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, 
I was just going to say that, like, I don't know, if you do any kind of psychedelics or if you do shrooms and you, like, sit down on the ground and, like, you will see and feel the earth move in a way that you otherwise never would. And a lot of people talk about how when you ingest shrooms, like, part of why I'm very, like, anxious about the environment is because I know that it's, like, sentient because my mycelium networks that grow underneath forests are alive. Like, when you step on a forest floor, everything around you knows that you're there. Like, they have a consciousness that can communicate with each other in ways that we don't even know how to communicate with each other. And so, I don't know, that's why I think everybody should do psychedelics and just sit on the ground and hear the mushrooms talk to you because I don't think people can care about the earth otherwise, unfortunately. That's a fair point. I never thought about it like that. That's a fair point. Um, And I also feel like kind of, I guess, jumping off that a little bit, um, there's a really pertinent sense of loss in this film, right? You know, how obviously, and I'll get to the, the kind of ending ending of this film in a second, but uh, you know, how him kind of tells this story of how he lost everything in the fire and how that's even, even that idea of losing everything is so hard to wrap your mind around. Because I think he says, you know, your memories, uh, your work, your dirty toothbrush, uh, stuff like that. Obviously, how uh, the Cain and Abel situation where, you know, he kills his brother, um, obviously the baby getting snapped his neck, you know, how do you, how do you feel like this movie kind of deals with the sense of loss and even with like the Mother Earth stuff as well? Mm, that's a really hard question to be honest I think like I mean the movie just exudes loss in every way kind of like you just said like I don't know but there's almost no resolution to it like it just starts over like you don't Aronofsky is like yeah it's true life sucks the planet's dying here's all this like death and decay and loss I mean she quite literally incites the apocalypse at the end she like sets everything on fire because she's had enough fair enough. I mean, like I relate, you know, but at the same time, there's no solution, which is, I I don't think that all things should be tied up with a neat bow, but like, I don't know. I think that part of maybe the message of loss is like teaching, like asking you, how are you going to deal with this? Like become aware of this. We're not giving you the solution. Like you have to find it yourself, which I think can be seen as lazy and maybe to an extent is, but at the same time, like it is, better almost that way if that makes sense yeah uh you know and i'm glad you mentioned the cyclical nature of this story you know how the beginning it really is the end you know how we open with that flaming girl in the first frame and then at the by the end it's kind of you know the full circle it brings the diamond back the house grows back it's a different woman in the bed this time do you find this ending to be hopeful or hopeless or maybe neither I guess maybe neither. I think I'm glad that you gave that option because I think that it would be neither. I don't know. I guess the way that I interpreted the end, like I'm very much a believer in parallel universes. I think science is a believer in parallel universes, you know, like it would be stupid and ignorant to say that there's nothing else out there. And so to me, it was just like, well, I guess we all just have to start over, you know? And so I think that that's hopeful in a way to think that like, oh, we can start over. We can like do something again. But you also have to consider, like, what about all the people that burned up and died because we couldn't treat the earth well? So it's kind of like, ah, figure it out, you know? I don't, I don't know. It's both. Oh, def- definitely. Yeah, I, I was, I was, I was just curious. I don't know if there really is, and who knows? Aronofsky may not even give an answer for which one it is, anyway. Now we've had some pretty difficult movies to pitch in past episodes, but honestly, Mother might just take the top spot. 
Mm, it really, there are just certain people who should not watch this movie or who will never watch this movie, which I perfectly, like, that's fine. I respect that, you know. I guess, I think my sales pitch would, at least, like, there would be an addendum that's like, please watch it twice. Like, you'll just like it better if you watch it twice, I promise. I think my sales pitch might be, as cliche as this is, I don't think that film solves everything. I don't think movies, you know, are the solution. But, like, there is a certain level of comfort to being, like... Have, I, I mean, I guess like what I just said, like seeing your experiences, even of hopelessness represented in like a visual way. I think my sales pitch would probably just be like, it's really interesting. You're probably going to hate it, but also love it at the same time. And maybe it'll like soothe and amplify a lot of your anxieties about like death and climate. But it kind of has to do both. <laughs> you know, like you can't be comfortable without being uncomfortable. Coming up next on the Formative Films Project... We'll close out this entire podcast series with an ode to the work of directors Paul Schrader, Paul Thomas Anderson, Alfonso Cuaron, and Bong Joon-ho. Again, it's it's another pivot for PTA and his filmography, you know, coming off of There Will Be Blood, which I think is his masterpiece. I think when we look back at Paul Thomas Anderson's career, I think one day when you look back at it, I think There Will Be Blood is probably going to be the most prominent one that stands out. But I mean, I chose The Master because I think it's it's such a it's such an intimate yet weird film. It's it's incredibly cerebral. It's got a lot of big ideas, a lot of things it wants to say, um, and yet it's very poetic. Um, and it's just one. It's a movie that I can come back to again and again, and and kind of get such a different perspective. It's so refreshing watching a movie in your native language. Oh my goodness. And then like, I go to Mexico all the time. Like if I'm not here, I'm in Mexico. And just seeing where I'm from on a movie, like on a screen was so emotional. I cried at the beginning, just hearing the Spanish. And then also my mom, her English isn't really like on point and she doesn't like American films because she can't relate to them and so Roma was one of the couple movies that we were able to watch together and for um, you know America to take this movie and to really notice that you know there's a whole nother entertainment industry outside of the United States and to recognize it uh, with all these awards and really to see you know you know, just the little things about it, like, you know, everything from like the art direction to the cinematography, and especially to the acting that, you know, foreign language films, you know, even though they're speaking a foreign language, everyone can kind of read and see what it's about. And all the emotions that are attached with this film really resonated with me. 